Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community, while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll take you to a suburban park that's hosting a summer-long exhibition of Mexican folk art sculptures called Alebrijes. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review Steep Theater's latest production. Later, we'll visit the new immersive Prince Experience that just opened in Chicago. And I'll catch up with the Chicago Film Archives' collections manager to talk about a program that matches audio and visual artists together in an effort to give archival pieces of film new life. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. People familiar with Wheaton-based Cantini know what to expect when they visit the 500-acre park. The former estate of the late Robert McCormick is home to two museums, a number of real tanks, several beautiful gardens, walking trails, and lots of open space. However, this summer, visitors might feel like they're having a fever dream as they encounter a variety of colorful creature sculptures in locations all over the grounds. The dreamlike sculptures are called alebrijes. Alebrije is actually an artistic creation that was dreamed up by Pedro Linares and literally dreamed up. This is Sarah Phelan. She's the chair of DuPage's Mexican Cultural Center, the organization that helped make this new public art project a reality. The origins of these imaginative sculptures can be traced back to a Mexican artist who had a fever dream. In the 1930s, Pedro Linares had a fever dream. If you've ever had one of those fever dreams where you're just so out of it, he was very, very ill. So he's in this dream and he's walking down a forest path and there's all these different creatures, amalgamations of different animals, to mythical beings, and they're all saying, Aleblije, Aleblije. And so that word actually has no translation. It's just from his dream, which everybody keeps saying, what does it mean in English? It means Aleblije in English. So he comes out of this fever dream, and from there creates an Aleblije. He was a cartonero or a paper mache artist in Mexico City. And so he then uses his paper mache skills and creates these Aleblijes. And it becomes an art form that many different people pick up, but also in different areas. So in Oaxaca, you'll find wood Aleblijes, which are more indigenous inspired painted wood. But the ones in Mexico City, the traditional Aleblijes are the paper mache structures. For those communities that do celebrate with alebrijes, is it like a Day of the Dead type thing? It is now, especially in Mexico City, they now do La Noche de los Alebrijes in like it's a parade in Mexico City each November. And it is tied to Day of the Dead in the way of almost a spiritual animal, although traditionally it wasn't always necessarily tied that way. I recently visited Cantini to get an up-close look at the new installation titled Alebrijes, Creatures of a Dream World, which will be on display through October 1st. Around 48 papier-mâché sculptures of all different sizes are located throughout Cantini's vast grounds. Phelan says the West Chicago-based Mexican Cultural Center introduced the idea for an outdoor Alebrijes exhibition to Cantini around five years ago. We reached out to them about 2017, right around the time Coco, the movie came out, the Pixar movie, which was great because then we had that pop culture connection so people could understand a little bit more what Nalebrije is. Because although it's very well known in Mexico City and in Oaxaca, it's not even well known throughout Mexico necessarily. And then in the United States, even our Mexican communities here don't all know what an Alebrije is. But when we reached out to Cantini, they said, sure, let's keep talking about it. They had never done a large-scale art project like this either, cultural exchange. Um, And then during the pandemic, as we all thought, like, what are we going to do next? You know, how do we move our work forward? This is an outside exhibition, so it's kind of COVID-proof. It's a wonderful way to showcase and bring back that economic drivers, but also to our Latino community that's been hit so hard by COVID economically, medically, mentally. Um, it's really a wonderful celebration. So when we approached them and said, 
you know, we want to bring three artists and maybe 18 Alebrijes. And they said, well, you know, we have a big park. Let's do a few more. Which is how we landed at six artists and 48 Alebrijes sculptures. This is Alejandro Camacho Barrera, one of the six Mexican artists who's created work for this project. With the help of translator Robert Enriquez, I talked to Barrera about his artistic process for creating Alebrijes. Ideas that we have cannot really be seen, so the first step for us is to have the idea and then to pass that concept to a two-dimensional figure drawn on paper. After I have the idea or the concept on two dimensions, then I start adding a three-dimensional factor and three-dimensional uh, pieces to it so that then the final form begins to take place. After I start having the basic outline in three dimensions, a dialogue begins between myself and the figure. And it starts telling me where to place more forms or more pieces and also adding color. And after a while, that dialogue goes back and forth until finally the piece is actually finished when the form or the entity within that art form is telling me that's pretty much it. Don't, don't put any more extensions, don't put any more forms to me, don't add any more colors. You really are finished. I'm finished. Once the author has completed the work, then the piece actually has acquired its own personality and it no longer directs any questions or comments or ideas to the author. The author has finished his participation in that dialogue. From that point forward, it's the actual personality of the alebrije that's speaking to the observer at any given moment. Whatever the person wants to un understand from that alebrije, that's what the alebrije will tell them. So a lot of creative energy goes to, to creating these pieces. Do you have hopes for what viewers take away? Once the piece is finished and has acquired its own personality, I always hope deep down that it communicates about us, about Mexico, about the colors of Mexico, the cultural Mexico, and some of the background of our history. And I hope that they communicate the respect and the love and the hopes and dreams of our country and that people appreciate them in a way that is distinct to themselves. Taking into account, of course, how they were created with the love that they were created and with the interest that we have for Alebrijes. Our artwork is really like as our children. We nurture them, create them, nurture them, give them life, and then send them on their way, on whatever path they choose or whatever path they will take, to tell about us and to communicate to others and begin a dialogue between themselves and others beyond our reach or beyond where we are physically. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the art section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking to the various stakeholders who made the new Alebrijes installation at Cantini a reality. It's absolutely beautiful to see these creatures. They're, they're just like a mix of different creatures, and, and they always try to guess what, the, what each creature, what a mix of animals it, it is. Fernando Ramirez is the founder and president of DuPage's Mexican Cultural Center. It was his idea that launched this whole project. He says it's exciting to see the sculptures in person at Cantini. Ramirez enjoys telling people who aren't familiar with this art form that these sculptures are made out of paper mache. Once I tell them, you know, it's, it's craft paper. It's cardboard. And so they have to do a double take and look, wait a minute. And they're like, that is craft paper? That is cardboard? Like that? You just did that? And they're like, yes, that's, this is what they've been doing for, you know, since the f uh, 30s. This is a, a family trade. So they're very well experienced in, in, this, in this trade. And then the bomb drops on them and they realize, holy cow, all of those are, are these uh, materials that can just basically be broken the next day. 
Uh, most of the artists work though about 90% of the pieces are recycled materials. So they have the metal frame structures, um, even tin cans, chicken wire, and then they get layers and layers of the paper mache. And then we put on a, a special varnish for them here to sustain the Illinois weather. These six selected artists created the alebrijes in Mexico and then shipped them to Cantini. Once the sculptures arrived in the U.S., it was Cantini's director of horticulture, Scott Whitty's job to find places on the park's grounds to put them. Whitty and his team created an alebrije trail of sorts for visitors to follow. Where each piece would lead you on to the next one. Visitors, after they view one, they can oftentimes see the next one off in the horizon. And there are even instances where there's a type of allure, like you can only see a tail or, a or the tip of a wing, and you're like, oh, what's over there? And that's on the other side of a, a six-foot hedge or something like that. The big whale is another example of that as it's situated in between two large hills on the right side of our prairie view area where you just get a small glimpse of it, but it draws you over there. It kind of creates that allure mm -hmm. to draw you through the park. Another thing Witty did was research specific types of flora that could tie into the Alabrije experience. As soon as we learned that it was a good, there was a good chance that we were going to get the Alabrijes exhibit, my horticultural team began to design around the vibrant colors of the Alabrijes pieces. And so we, we did our research with regard to what uh, flowers are relevant with regard to Mexico. And it may come to many people's surprise that uh, Mexico in general is, is a very diverse habitat for a, a, a diverse uh, amount of floral species. Um, one in particular, you know, we incorporated the dahlia. The dahlia is the national flower of Mexico. It used to be utilized both uh, medicinally and also for its beauty, obviously, but uh, both the tuber of the plant and the flower of the plant were utilized in uh, Mexican culture. Um, another example is the Mexican marigold, which is used heavily uh, during the Day of the Dead um, celebration. Um, the Mexican petunia, we worked in some of the design on our what we call the canoe beds up in, in the front of the visitor center. So there are several examples of this throughout the park, but another good example with the vibrant colors, one of the varieties of lantana that we utilized has a very fruity smell to it, but its orange, its bright orange tones almost match perfectly some of the uh, near fluorescent orange yellow tones that are used in, in the turtle in one of the canoe beds in front. So there are lots of examples of that that, that just kind of reverberate through a lot of the floral design. As you see the, the pieces scattered throughout the park, you're also gonna see these tremendously vibrant colors from some of these flowers that we chose based on their connection to Mexico and its culture. The horticulture team's efforts are representative of the collaborative spirit surrounding the project. Ramirez, who had the initial idea to create a public art project based around the Alabrijes, says a lot of stakeholders had to come together to make the project a reality. When we presented it to Cantini, they said to me, Fernando, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. You know, it's not that we don't want to do this. This is a wonderful experience, but what we, we don't know where we're at at the time because of during this pandemic. And so I said, you know what? I went to the DCBB and I said, hey, what do you guys think about this idea? And I just presented, what do you think about this idea and this and that? And see if, if kind of maybe they'll kind of speak to them a little bit and just talk to them and kind of get hype them up a little bit about it. And, and you know, and that happened. Basically, they talked to them and they said, you know what? No, if you guys are interested, let's, let's figure something out. Let's see if we can really put this together. And uh, we finally got a chance to sit down with uh, DCBB, uh, a canteen. And then after that, you know, we just kept adding more uh, people that were excited to be able to, to be participate. Our city of West Chicago who came in. So as soon as they said they heard what's going to happen and the other members are being involved, they're like, however we can support, let's let's figure let's figure this out. And, and I think the biggest thing that we were all like kind of saying is like, this is during a pandemic. Worst comes to worst, we're all going to want to go outside and experience, do something outside if it gets really bad, you know. So I think at that point we all realized, you know what, you're right. Summer's going to come around. Everybody's going to want to come out. Let's give something for them to come out and, and to and to be able to do it. And it just you know it just worked out wonderfully. As Ramirez just mentioned, one of the keys to getting this project moving in the early stages was the work done by the DuPage Conventions and Visitors Bureau. 
really the role of the Bureau is to not only facilitate meetings and conventions and conferences, but it's to put the local partners together. This is DCBB Executive Director Beth Marchetti. At the very first meeting, we had Cantini and the DuPage Mexican Cultural Center and McCormick Foundation. We went to West Chicago. We've also got um, some momentum from the Mackinac Art Center and the College of DuPage hosting the Frida Kahlo exhibit last year, where we were very strong partners and in fact worked with the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, Illinois Office of Tourism, to help both of these exhibitions get state grant money. So very strong partnerships and I think that's what you know we are all about in DuPage is working together collaboratively to enhance the economic fiber but also just make it a better quality of life for our residents. Marchetti believes the Alabrijes installation has the potential to draw a lot of first-time visitors to Cantini and the Mexican Cultural Center is hopeful the project sheds some new light on the nuances of Mexican culture. Obviously, there's just like an aesthetic. It's pleasing just to look at something beautiful, but are you hoping that the people that come out and, and look at these take away something? Absolutely. And something that the Mexican Cultural Center tries to do all all the time is to push the variety of Mexico. You know, there's stereotypical notions of what Mexican art is, what Mexican culture is, but Mexico is a huge country and with a lot of different regions and tons of art forms. And so we hope that this also inspires people to learn a little bit more about that value and the variety of art in Mexico and to explore some of the traditions behind it, the native traditions. Um, there's so much tied in with nature, with the four elements of the world that also go into these pieces. So we hope people are inspired to learn more about that as well. That's Sarah Phelan, the board chair of DuPage's Mexican Cultural Center. You can check out the vibrant, one-of-a-kind Alabrijes sculptures for yourself at Cantini Park. Alabrijes, Creatures of a Dream World, is on display through October 1st, and the artists who created these sculptures are on site at Cantini through early July. You can find more information at cantini.com. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every Sunday on 90.9 and 90.7 FM, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus find more information on all of the features you hear on the program. Check out theartsection.org, and also feel free to reach out to me if you have a question or comment about something you hear on the show. You can email me at gzydic at wdcb.org, or find me on Instagram or Twitter at onairgary. April in Paris Chestnuts in blossom And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. After an extended pandemic pause, Steep Theater is back with a new production in a new space. The company is raising money to renovate the structure at the corner of Berwyn and Kenmore in the Edgewater neighborhood. And while that's going on, the company is going to produce work in the building, which was a Christian science reading room, I believe. Steep's inaugural production in the new space is Ebony Booth's play, Paris. I'll mention the good news, bad news scenario right at the beginning. The good news is tickets are free for this production. The bad news is every ticket for the run, which goes until July 23rd, has already been reserved. But there is a, a waiting list you can add your name to. If you're interested, go to steeptheater.com. And that's before we've even talked about <laughs> it. I'm beginning to wonder what kind of power we actually have here, Jonathan. <laughs> We, I just wanted to let people know up front, but obviously I uh, sure. still, uh, still want to listen to this. Uh, and we're going to get into the, the details of the play. And I also thought right off the bat, uh, Carrie, uh, we could get into the play's title. Paris doesn't refer to the uh, world's most romantic city. 
Sorry. No, it does not. No, and nor does it refer to Paris, Texas. It um, it refers to Paris, a small town in Vermont, which is the setting for Ebony Booth's show, which takes place pretty much over the winter holidays, or, you know, early and uh, rather late in 1995 and moving into early 1996. Uh, it all takes place at this big box store called Barry's, which I have to wonder if that's in the script or if that's a nod to the director, Jonathan Barry. <laughs> uh, it, it, you get a sense of what this place is like pretty early on. There is a sign on the warehouse wall reading in, in, in uh, big stark letters, nobody cares, work harder. And I think that pretty much is a pretty strong encapsulation of what the, uh, of what the attitude and the environment is. In Paris, uh, our, our chief protagonist is Emmy, uh, played by Amber Salas, a young black woman who grew up in the town. She's returned after a year of college in Washington, D.C., and even though she grew up there, none of her coworkers seem to remember her. It's almost as if she's invisible. You get the sense that while it's perhaps not an overtly racist town, that there are microaggressions. Um, her black manager, Gar, who hires her to work at, at Barry's, you know, is not surprised when he finds out that she was denied a job working the register at another store in town. So he gives her a chance. He gives her the vest. She starts working at the warehouse, and things pretty much start going off the rails or or they're staying on the rails and those rails just happen to be going around and around in a very sad and very disheartening direction i don't know uh, what, what were your thoughts about uh the, the way the story unfolds jonathan well i think that paris is one of those plays that conceals far more than it reveals making it difficult to fathom frankly um i do not recall unless i missed it any reference to this taking place in Paris, Vermont, or any other Paris. Uh -huh. uh, so that, and, and there is no reference uh, until one visual reference, uh, uh, literally a banner on the wall, in the next to the last scene to tell you what year or what time period you're in. So if you come and you don't know what the story is about, either from having read the press release, as you and I did, mm -hmm. or reading the program note, which some people do and some people don't, you're not going to know where you are, and you're not going to know when it's taking place till very late in the play. So you won't understand why most of these characters are working for substandard wages in a big box store. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they're working $5 an hour or something, and you're like, yeah, what? Yeah. <laughs> now, now, Emmy, the lead character, also conceals more than she reveals. Yes. She is incredibly passive through most of the play and volunteers very little information about herself beyond basic facts in response to questions she's uh, asked. Um, she reveals one thing, in addition to her store job, she also works part-time at a bar. Now, she never discusses this job, how she feels about it, how it affects her, nor does it affect the story. So why does the playwright give us this information? Um, and as I said, even the title is a mis mystery, because unless I just... It went by me so quickly that I didn't hear it. There is no reference to this being located in Paris, Vermont, or Paris, any place. Uh, did I miss something? Um, I thought that they did mention it, but maybe I missed something. Who knows? Uh -huh. You know, I do think that the the idea of the bar, I think, is introduced as this place where seemingly she could make more money. You know, uh, seemingly it might be a better opportunity for her. Um, it does feature into a plot development of sorts, or at least something that happens even before the story unfolds. Uh, she suffered an injury to her face, and yeah. the assumption is that she's been abused, and it turns out she was just, you know, she'd had one too many at her, you know, after work and had fallen. You know, I think what Booth is working here a little bit is some of the same territory that we saw I don't know if you remember the uh, David Lindsay Bear play uh, "Good People" that was at the Good, uh, sorry, at Steppenwolf several years ago, Jonathan, about a you know a, a clerk in a convenience store and sort of the downward spiral, of, uh, you know, being working poor yeah. and how one bad decision, one car accident, one broken tooth, you know, just one one false step has such ramifications when you don't really have a safety net. I think what I mean, I, it's not quite as stark as that, though. I think what Booth is working with is the idea of how people... To me, it was more of a character study, I think, than a plot-driven piece. Although there certainly is 
a very dark plot element that's introduced and that's sort of, I won't say anything more about that, and it's off chance that people are able to get in, you know, on the wait list. Um, it's introduced, and it's not fully resolved at the end. It's sort of left hanging in a rather macabre, mysterious way uh, as the fate of one of the characters. But I think it's really about how people in this sort of, you know, rats in a cage, whatever metaphor you want to use, world, interact with each other. And on that level, I thought it was quite well done. And I think she has a really strong feel for who these these characters are, what the energy and the dynamics can be, how they can change on a dime, how they can be very supportive one moment, um, and just, you know, actually, you know, rather quite cruel to each other the next. Um, I thought the ensemble under Barry's direction was excellent. Perhaps a little bit of irony here, Jonathan Barry is leaving Chicago, and he is going to take over the artistic directorship at a small, you know, at a, I don't know if it's a small theater, but a theater in Bangor, Maine. So he, he himself is heading out to that part of the country, and it's kind of interesting yeah. that this was his, uh, his swan song, although I think he will be coming back to work. Um, I, I, I would say if you get in to see it, enjoy it more. I, I think she has a strong ear for dialogue. I don't think she's written a lot of plays. I think there's a lot of promise here, and I really enjoyed just seeing these actors on stage. Okay, the only thing that I really got firmly out of this, the only thing that the play clearly offers without mystery or obfuscation is that every character in Paris is unhappy. Mm. Mostly they are low-level employees working for low pay with a payroll department that repeatedly miscalculates their hours and with a boss, Gar, who constantly throws impossible company rules in their faces and threatens to fire every one of them. Even Emmy, who hardly has had, has had time to know the rules, who's hired just a, a couple of, you know, had been hired yeah. just a few days before. Emmy is mostly silent, observant, and cautious. I got the feeling that she probably is brighter than anybody else in the room yep. with her, mm-hmm. but we don't know this for sure because the play doesn't reveal it, nor do we know to what purpose her understanding, her private understandings are working or, 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 or where they are going to take her. Right. Um, as, as you said, Gar, who is the one who hires Emmy, he's the boss, also is black. Now, again, the program note... The play doesn't say this. You have to read the program note. It says that Paris is about self-identity. And the implication is that it's especially difficult if you're black in a nearly all-white community. Uh, and this apparently is part of the real-life experience of Ebony Booth, the, the play's writer. But the play, again, not revealing, never indicates that Emmy and Gar are part of a tiny, isolated uh, you know, minority community. But the play, again, not revealing, never indicates that Emmy and Gar are part of a tiny, isolated minority. You know, I had the feeling, again, it was just uh, uh, my own sense, that Gar is the first person of color ever promoted to even a low-level management position at this store. Now, that could be an important key to understanding the play, but this information specifically isn't offered. You, You know, the one action, if you can call it that, that Emmy takes, is late in the play. It's implied that Gar is in trouble uh, due to his part in the black market cigarette scheme, which is, uh, which is briefly referenced. And in her only overt action, Emmy alone expresses concern about Gar and squeezes a promise from one other employee to go looking for him. That is, if he still is missing the next day. And then Paris ends for me, very inclu- inconclusively, uh, you know, I agree that the, with you, Carrie, that the the cast, the company, is more than capable under you know Jonathan Berry, an esteemed director, and with ensemble member Amber Salis as Emmy, and I also like Terry, Terrence Sims as the very material Dar, who isn't necessarily a nice guy. The production held my interest for ninety minutes even though Paris refused to provide me the answers or even the information that I thought it should. Yeah, I think maybe what, I, what, I, what I'm hearing you say, and maybe I'm wrong on this, is that it's kind of a, and I, I would agree with this, that it's a play that is um, resisting the pull of a tidy narrative because it wants to show us that the people in this play, that these characters are themselves caught up in so much uncertainty from day to day, uh, you know, just very, uh, very much 
living at the whims of others, um, that it almost feels as if there is not, you know, a straightforward trajectory that they can enjoy in their lives. I think that it's probably true that things could be revealed more, although I've kind of understood with Emmy why she would not. Um, and I think particularly as this play goes on, for me at least, I felt I got a sense of how it was for her to be in this town where, you know, she's like, I grew up here. And people are like, really? I don't remember seeing you. And you think, did I grow up here? It's almost like they're questioning in a subtle way, you know, her place there, whether her right to be there. Um, and at the same time, there's this assumption like, well, you must be from New York. Well, she doesn't strike me as a particularly, you know, as a city kid. You know, there's a, there's not a sense of streetwise or toughness or anything right. like that about her. Um, so you have to wonder, is that an assumption that's made because of her race, or is it just, something that they're seeing that we're not, you know. But to, you know, to a degree, to, to paraphrase uh, Gertrude Stein's comment about Oakland, you know, Emmy is a character and there's no there there. You know, when a playwright leaves it to the audience to try to figure out what the play is about and what the playwright's message is, then the great danger is that the audience will get it wrong and not understand it at all. Um, you know, part of playwriting, even if you want to have a mysterious character who's not forthcoming, is to find ways to give the audience enough information to understand the message that you, the playwright, want the audience to understand. And I don't know that that's happening in Paris. Okay, so some differing ideas here. Classic duel. Carrie recommends it, Jonathan not so much. And again, I'll mention that uh, Steep Theater's Paris continues through July 23rd at the new Steep Theater in the Edgewater neighborhood, but tickets are quote-unquote sold out. Uh, They're free, but they've all been reserved. There is, uh, however, a a waiting list where you can sign up over at uh, steeptheater.com. You know, we should throw in that the new space, which formerly was a Christian Science reading room, actually has parking uh, has its own uh, small parking lot, but um, yeah, and and that is a bonus for people outside the neighborhood. I'm fortunate enough; I can walk to Steep, right. and uh, and they do but, have some lovely you know, uh, plans ahead for the space. If the yes, if the fundraising do. goes well, you can see the the blueprints, and you know, the, uh, some of our listeners who may have gone to the old space on Berwyn will remember they had opened a space called the Boxcar, which was like a little bar where they had performances, readings, music, and that's very much in the works. Uh, to be a part of the new space as well, that they can have kind of, you know, ancillary programming, if you will, in addition to whatever plays they're doing. And I believe their next play is opening later this summer, but that will be at Theater Wit. Right. So we're looking forward to what the new space will look like. Uh, the uh, managing, the executive director, told me that they're going to begin construction, uh, actually remodeling in the fall, uh, after their two summertime shows close. Right. And, uh, Jonathan, uh, I think you and I probably both remember back when Steve was at on uh, West Sheridan by the Sheridan Red Line. They seemed to love being right next to Red Line stations, which is good for them. And that space was uh, right next to a honky-tonk bar. So, you know, around about 9 o'clock at night, no matter what the yeah. play was, yeah. you could hear your cheating heart or something coming through the walls. <laughs> they're they're, they're going to have to play some pre-recorded, you know, uh, uh, CTA trains rumbling by. Or people won't think they're at the Steve Theater. Okay. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're welcome, Gary. Thank you both. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life, it means forever, and that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you, there's something else. The afterworld. I'm Gary Zydek, and you're tuned into the art section. Pop music icon Prince would have turned 64 earlier this month. He passed away on April 21st, 2016, leaving behind an adoring fan base that eagerly anticipated his next live performance or album.
Born Prince Rogers Nelson, the Minneapolis native is one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Over 150 million of his records have been sold. A new interactive Prince exhibition is offering fans a new way to connect with the late pop superstar. Prince, the immersive experience is making its world premiere in Chicago. It was created by the New York-based entertainment company Superfly in collaboration with the Prince Estate. Visitors will be able to experience 10 unique rooms that will offer settings for plenty of Instagram-worthy pics, but there's also a tremendous amount of biographical information about Prince. I visited the Immersive Prince Experience days before it opened and caught up with Superfly co-founder Carrie Black to talk about what went into creating this new Prince exhibition. I'm curious, what's the, the starting point for something like this? Yeah, you know, it was it started with Superfly. We started doing these walkthrough experiences around uh, TV shows. We do, we've been doing them around the Friends, uh, and we had The Office more recently. And uh, we're a music company first and foremost. We're, you know, started off doing music festivals. And so it was a very natural progression for us to look to do it around music. And Prince was really just, you know, first choice, one of our favorite artists. And he's got such a visual you know, style to him, and he's just such a mysterious character, and he's so inspiring. There's just so much around. He just seems like a, a perfect person um, to do an experience around. And um, so we've been working with the estate for about two years now, and they've been amazing. They've been introducing us to everyone in his sphere. So, you know, whether it's um, designers he worked with or musicians, uh, photographers, we've really just kind of gone into his world to like work with all these people to make sure what we're building is authentic and stuff that he would be, you know, excited about. The task of then creating an immersive experience that fully explores the life of an icon like Prince then falls to the Superfly team. Really, it's, you know, it started with us just brainstorming on like, what are the what do we want to do here and you know how can we make this experience you know unique and different you know i think we we wanted to do sort of two things with this is first you know showcase who he was with um you know your more traditional the memorabilia the guitars the outfits um to really kind of learn a little bit about who he was but also we really wanted to make this more of an entertainment experience and we want it to be fun sort of an amusement park of prince right and so having these more immersive and interactive areas to uh to really delve into um, to create that more immersive exhibit that people really just have a good time at. And then as far as the estate then, did they loan you authentic pieces of yep. princes? Yeah, they've been working with us throughout. They're loaning us um, pieces and they've been just, um, you know, really working with us on every detail to make sure it's correct and, um, uh, and true to who he was. Debuting it here in Chicago, does that have anything to, to do with proximity to Minneapolis? Absolutely. As we were looking at um, where to start this, we wanted to obviously do it in uh, a larger city, and, and we really liked Chicago because it was, you know, uh, in the Midwest, nearby Minneapolis, um, so had that connection there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just a great city for um, these kinds of immersive experiences as well. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Carrie Black, the co-founder of Superfly, the New York-based company behind the new immersive Prince experience that just opened in Chicago. Black believes the experience has something to offer the entire spectrum of Prince's extremely diverse fan base. Yeah, I think, you know, I really want them to be sort of inspired by Prince and kind of take that into their everyday life. Um, he was someone, who, you'll learn a lot about that in the experience of like what sort of made him tick, but um, he was just a very inspirational character. And um, on top of that, we just want people to really have a good time and, and, and really come in and, you know, go deep. Um, there's tons of details throughout the experience. So really, um, yeah, really go deep and have fun. It does provide a little beyond just folks that are familiar with Purple Rain. You can learn about his, he was a trailblazer for musician rights. Yeah, absolutely. That was an important important part to us to really showcase um, so who he was. Uh, like you mentioned, the artist rights is a really big part of his story. You know, a lot of people don't know that story and, and how, you know, like he, he changed his name to a symbol. There was actually a real reason for that. It was because of his... Um, you know, battle over this, the rights to his songs and wanting to release material at the, at the rate that he wanted to. Um, he didn't just do that because he was a crazy artist. He had a, a real intention behind it. Um, and 
all of that really changed the music industry forever and how people write their contracts and how they go about you know, trying to own their own music and masters. Do you have a favorite Prince song? Uh, I have many. It changes by the day, but a, a couple of favorites. Um, you know, nine-year-old me, when I got into Prince, it was Computer Blue, and they have a, they released a few years ago uh, a 13-minute version of called the Hallway Speech version of Computer Blue, which I highly recommend checking out. It's on the Purple Rain Super Deluxe. It's incredible. And then uh, Everlasting Now is another favorite from the Rainbow Children record. So some, some deeper cuts, and then the experience kind of ends with people can take a mini personality test to get like their perfect Prince playlist. Absolutely, that's, uh, that's one we're really most excited about. You know, just for, by going through this process, one of the great things has been just to really dive in and, and to learn about all the <clears throat> deep cuts, all the vol tracks they've been releasing over the years, and uh, all, just discovering all that was so amazing that we wanted to do a space where you know, people coming through could do that too, could really go deeper on his catalog and find music that would resonate with them. You know, so in that listening experiences area, there are, no, there are no hits. It's all the deep cuts and vol tracks, so tons to discover. I know the focus is on, on Prince right now, but any thoughts on what might be next? Um, you know, we're, we're working on a bunch of concepts, but um, you know, we have some other artists in a similar vein that we're, we're looking at doing, but also more of genre-based ones too, where you know, it might be more of like the classical music world or the funk world or you know, doing something um, broader than just one person as well. So we'll see how it goes. That's Kerry Black, the co-founder of Superfly, the company producing Prince, the immersive experience, which is making its world premiere in Chicago. It's located at 540 North Michigan Avenue and scheduled to run through October 9th. You can find more information about the experience at PrinceTheExperience.com. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. A Chicago-based storytelling collective is tapping into a growing need in the private sector as companies look for new ways to engage their employees. Second Story is one of Chicago's oldest storytelling organizations. We believe that stories are the thing that tie people to each other. So we create spaces where people can share and listen to real, true, personal stories. This is Second Story Artistic Director Amanda Delheimer. I recently caught up with her in the East Albany Park neighborhood. We talked about Second Story's Culture Builds program, which covers a series of professional development offerings that dives into everything from equity, diversity, and inclusion trainings to team-building workshops. Second Story still presents storytelling events all over Chicago, but the company estimates that 30% of its income now comes from Culture Builds programming. The Professional Development Initiative represents the latest step in what's been an ongoing evolution for Second Story after it was established as a theater company in 1999. It's been kind of an interesting evolution. Second Story evolved from like a traditional theater company into what it is today. Yeah, in the great Chicago tradition, we were founded by a group of graduates who moved to Chicago and wanted to start a theater company. And one of the things that I love so much is that their original mission, and I might not word this correctly, but their original mission was to create social change through uh, dialogue, right? And so they did it in the form of plays, a lot of new plays. And when I became the artistic director, Second Story was one of the programs that we had. So it had started as a fundraiser. One of the um, theater members, the company members, worked at Webster's Wine Bar and was like, oh, we should raise some money. We should tell some stories, do some short plays upstairs. And uh, the old Webster's wine bar was this kind of like long bar where you couldn't really see everything. And so the stories did really well because you could just kind of listen to them, whereas the short plays in that space did not do so well. And so they decided to build on the storytelling part of it uh, and started a program called Second Story. And I actually happened to be in the audience at the very first performance because a friend of mine was DJing. Uh, and he needed somebody to help carry his stuff around. Uh, and I had a car and two arms. So I happened to be there in the audience and I knew some of the folks from other, from the Chicago theater community. 
And over time, it just became clear that the thing that this particular group of people in this particular organization had to offer the world that was that really felt special was this storytelling piece. Uh, and so in about 2007, we decided to stop producing plays. Um, and those of us who make plays make them in other places still and really focus our full attention and resources on storytelling. That commitment to storytelling continues today. Second Story just wrapped up its 23rd season this past Friday with a live performance at the Promontory. Pre-pandemic, the collective produced over 50 live events every season. Our storytellers, some are company members, and many are people who have been in our audience and said, oh, I have a great story to tell, uh, or folks who have come across us, they you know, search on the internet for storytelling in Chicago and find us and submit a story. So we have an open submission process uh, and a process that really scaffolds for folks um, who are very new or folks who have been writing and telling stories for years. So there is a very robust scene and I think it's one of the things that's if you know about it you know about it and I think there's a lot of people who don't know about it. If you're just tuning in this is the art section my name is Gary Zydek I'm talking with second story artistic director Amanda Delheimer about the collective's evolution over the years. In recent years the organization has found a tremendous amount of success using its storytelling talents to create professional development offerings. We've all had to like you need to take this video or you need to watch this video on sexual harassment so we put it on play and then we walk away you know or we put it on and we fast forward through the slides just to be able to be like yes i did this and if we're trying to create real change if we're trying to like really get people to look at who they are and how they're walking through the world a slideshow on their computer is probably not going to be the thing that does it so our belief is that stories kind of open doors, right? Stories ask questions. Um, stories stick in our minds. Like I'm not, probably not gonna remember that PowerPoint presentation in a couple of weeks, but a really good story I might chew on for years. And maybe the seed gets planted and there isn't much fruition to it in, the, in a short period of time. But the idea that I'm still chewing on this story six months, a year, two years later, right? That it sticks in my mind. That's the kind of change that we're hoping to start. You might not associate office team building and diversity and inclusion training with a creative storytelling collective, but Delheimer says the culture builds concept really grew organically out of the company's existing mission. A few years ago, we sat down and asked ourselves, you know, what are assets that we have that we can offer to the world? And one of the things that came up over and over again is this idea of storytelling or creative practice uh, as a tool, right? That it's an asset that we have that we can offer. So Culture Builds is our kind of offering to uh, corporate trainings. We do a lot of equity, diversity, and inclusion trainings. We do workshops and classes. And the idea is that we can use stories as an entry point into difficult conversations. Uh, we can use storytelling as a way to connect with each other in, a, in the workplace. We can use storytelling as a tool to be able to better convey you know, the mission of an organization, the values of an organization, and that there's something about stories that kind of get underneath and get into the cracks uh, in a way that you know PowerPoint presentations or kind of some of the typical stuff that we see in the corporate sphere might not and so the beginning of it was us spending some time you know getting to know clients getting to know the landscape and trying to put the hat on of what does it mean to take these skills that have been used specifically to a creative end um, to the, the end being a performance and really think through what the like, different pieces of them are and then how to translate them. I know no situation is the, the same, but if an organization today reaches out, what are they looking for? What's that process? Yeah, so Gary comes to us and says, hey, I have this, I have this challenge. I'm wondering if you could um, work with me on it. And we spend a bunch of time in conversation trying to figure out, okay, what's going on? What is the thing that you really need? Sometimes um, I think all of us as humans will say, here's the thing I want. And that's not necessarily actually the tool that is really the most helpful, right? 
Um, so we spend some time getting to know the client and then we'll put together a proposal of like, okay, so here's what this could look like. And it's anything from, you know, somebody wants to have a conversation about microaggressions in the workplace and we're like, okay, great. So here's a story that we have that um, is about somebody experiencing microaggressions. We'll bring this story in and then we will facilitate a conversation around this story. And the story both gives us entry points for that conversation. It also gives the whole group something else to focus on and talk about. So as opposed to some workshops that are like, we'll come, somebody would come in and say like, oh, okay, so like, let's talk about microaggressions that you are experiencing here at this workplace really can put people on the spot, um, can be very unsafe and dangerous for folks. So the idea of trying to bring in an outside story that we can all look at separate from ourselves and have a similar experience engaging with. We also do things like storytelling as a tool. So we just did a partnership with Comcast that was a multi-month partnership where we are first working on the skill of storytelling and then talking about how to deploy storytelling um, in a networking situation, right, or in an, an interview or an application process. Uh, we also did a workshop about stories as a management tool. So the idea of stories stories and storytelling as a complicated and nuanced tool that can do all sorts of different things. That's Amanda Delheimer. She's the artistic director of Second Story. You can find more information about the collective and its culture builds program at secondstory.com. That's the numeral two ndstory.com. This is the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. What happens when a visual artist and a music artist collaborate on creating something new using archived film that includes everything from scripted motion pictures to home movies? You can see for yourself at Chicago Film Archives' upcoming Media Mixer event on Thursday, June 30th. While that setup I just described sounds vaguely like the premise for a 90s rom-com, it's also kind of the premise behind the CFA's Media Mixer project. There's no wacky sidekicks involved here. Instead, the hope is these unique pairings will lead to the creation of something that's completely original. The idea was born 10 years ago when the Chicago Film Archive was looking for a way to utilize its vault of archival footage, so it invited a visual artist and a sound artist to work together on making something new using existing pieces of film. Three artistic duos, each consisting of a visual artist and a sound artist, will be premiering new pieces of work at this year's Media Mixer. I recently caught up with CFA Collections Manager Yasmin Dasuki to talk about the initiative. The Media Mixer started in 2012, basically as a way to kind of open up CFA's vaults of archival footage to artists working in media and to support the creation of new work by pairing visual and sound artists. At the heart of it is really a desire to kind of add a new sort of interpretations and give new life to CFA's archival collections by having them reimagined creatively by contemporary artists from Chicago. And this year's Media Mixer event is on Thursday, June 30th at Constellation. It's the 10th anniversary. Each year, then, how does this event come together? Do visual and, and audio artists apply to be a part of it? Or uh, is there like a recruitment of new artists to participate? Um, I guess you can say it's by invitation, really. A lot of the work that goes into it in the beginning is really kind of researching different artists and then inviting them formally and seeing if they're interested in taking part in this event. What I do is um, I reach out to different curators in the city, different programmers, uh, people who, or even past media mixer artists, you know, and ask, you know, do you have other artists in mind do you, that you would like to kind of recommend that I look, research a bit and look into and see if they would be a good fit for this uh, event? And, you know, I have people send me recommendations and basically I spend some time, you know, watching material or listening to music and then kind of trying to imagine who would be best suited to do something like this. There is a bit of a risk involved in that, you know, the sound artist and the video artist, it's a blind pairing, basically. So I choose who can work with whom and not everyone 
you know, feels comfortable with that as part of their practice. You know, for example, some video artists are really attuned to the fact that for their own work, they like to choose their own, you know, the their sound partners. So it's really kind of just feeling out who would be open to this kind of event, to work creating this kind of work, and then inviting them. You do that work, and you come up with the artists you want to invite, and then you reach out, and once those pairings are, are made, then do you open up the Chicago Film Archives vault? I came out to, to visit uh, CFA yeah. last year, and I think you showed me around the, the vault. Mm-hmm. It's so, uh, you know, it's big, and, there, and there's so many different things. So with two new artists coming in, do they just start exploring it, or do you help guide them with what might be a good fit for this project? Yeah, we definitely help guide them, you know, in the beginning when they kind of commit to the project um, and I'm done with the pairings and I introduce the artists to one another, they have to meet each other and discuss kind of what they would like to do, the kind of artistic approach that they're thinking about. And then they send kind of a brief proposal to myself and to my colleague, Olivia Babler, and kind of, you know, there's an internal curation that happens of the footage that we have, and then we send them videos according to what they're interested in learning about and working with. You know, they usually have certain themes and motifs in mind. And then, uh, I know this is a question more for the the artists, and probably each duo has their own process, but traditionally do the visual artists kind of create something, and then uh, the the audio slash composers, do they then, like, score it with their things, or is it more of a, a collaborative process throughout? Well, you know, for sure it depends on each group. We try to underscore as much as we can from the get-go that we view this as a collaboration. And, you know, it's not. we are commissioning the video artists and the sound artists to work as equal partners on this. Um, but at the same time, there isn't a ton of, you know, intervention from my side or from CFA's side on how they decide to approach this work. So, you know, there's definitely going to be variations between each group and how they approach things. What was your reaction this year when you saw the finished products? We have uh, three teams of artists uh, that will be presenting work on uh, Thursday, June 30th. You get to see it ahead of time. What was your reaction? I mean, I was very excited. And also, you know, honestly, it's moving in a way because it's definitely fun for us to see what the artists come up with. You know, even if the group kind of, you know, if groups kind of use footage from the same film, which didn't happen this year, but, you know, they use footage from the same film to create their own piece. It's always done in a very different and unique way. And these interpretations are always interesting for us as archivists to see, because we're so used to seeing footage in a very specific way, in a specific context. And so when someone who's a bit more distant from the archival work and presents a different take or another way of seeing things, it can be pretty eye-opening. Right, like fresh eyes. Exactly, yeah. You know, I went to a, a media mixer back in, in 2018, but that feels like another era because of everything that's happened yeah. <laughs> in between. But, you know, I did have a good time. For people listening who may be interested in attending this year's event, uh, what should they know? Well, this year um, things will be a bit different. We have, you know, Sen Morimoto will perform live, and all the artists will be there for an on-stage conversation, except for Daniel Knox, who's currently who's currently out of the country. Um, but you know, I think that's the main thing to expect. And also, we do plan to sort of project sort of photochemically preserved films from our collections as a surprise to short films, just to kick things off, um, to sort of drum up interest, hopefully, in our collection. And, how, and show people how diverse they are. So given the, the different elements in play with this, uh, obviously there's film and visual art and music and, and sound art. This seems like it would have a, a broad appeal just to, to people interested in, in the arts. Well, that's the hope, you know. I mean, at CFA we do love being able to have our, the content housed in our archives be used and the support of different forms of storytelling. And, you know, the media mixer is really one example of our commitment to that. I will say that ultimately it's another way of making our collections accessible to members of the general public. So people with different interests will hopefully find something for them. You know, and I do think the media mixer adds another kind of dynamic layer to the work of a film archive in the way that it also kind of underscores the value and importance of what we do. And it does bring a kind of 
brings a kind of new urgency to our mission of preserving the moving image heritage of the Midwest. That was Chicago Film Archives Collections Manager Yasmin Dasuki. The nonprofit is presenting its Media Mixer event on Thursday, June 30th at 8.30 p.m. at Constellation. You can find more information at chicagofilmarchives.org. That's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section, but remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Hopefully it's not as hot out there. Thanks for listening.